to experience the freedom of Christ in your everyday life. And so he noticed, he says, the battle is whose? He says, the battle is the Lord's. Be strong in the Lord. That's a passive command. That means God supplies the strength. God supplies the armor. Here's your first deal. The armor is something that God gives you. It's not something you manufacture on your own. God is already has the pieces of the armor in place in your life. You just need to learn how to utilize them. So I can read about this all day long in the Bible. I, I could read this for years, this passage, but never leverage the armor of God on my behalf. That's what I want to teach you how to do. I want to teach you how to take the victory of Jesus and make it applicable to your life because this is what he does. And the way we have freedom is that we learn how to dress for success. And that's what the armor is all about. So we're going to take six weeks, one week for each piece of the armor, because I want you to thoroughly understand what it is and how it is that you applicate that to your, to your life. And notice it also says, listen, remember, we are not battling against flesh and blood. I know that you think people are your problem. They're only the vehicle through whom Satan might operate, but they are not the problem. This is a spiritual war, and it takes spiritual weaponry. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. So let me give you three reasons why you need the armor of God. Number one is because of your enemy. You'll notice he says to stand firm. To stand, to stand firm. Why? Because Satan attacks from the unseen realm. All right, when I'm doing spiritual warfare, do I actually see Satan? Do I actually see a demon? Do I actually physically see one? No. It's a spiritual war, and therefore I have to fight it on a spiritual level. I don't pick up um, physical things in order to, to, to war with Satan. If you don't use spiritual weapons to fight your spiritual battle, then it's like going to war with a cap pistol. I, I don't know how many of you, I'm old enough to remember that, okay? So when I was a little boy, you know, I, I, I was a cowboy, and I had my, you know, little six-shooters down here. They didn't have bullets, but they had caps. Remember the caps? You get rolls of them, you put them in your little pistol, and psh, 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 you know, little cap shooters. That's the way that most people, most Christians try to do spiritual war. For example, uh, let's say somebody says something that is very hurtful to you, and you become emotion, emotionally, you're, you're just angry, right? You're just mad at them, you're angry, and the heat of the moment you say something you wish you hadn't have said. See, that's like, that's like fighting a spiritual war with a cap pistol. You're, you're trying to use something that's not going to be very beneficial. Or we try to do things like, oh, we make um, New Year's resolutions. That really helpful, right? Like all the things, you know, we, we've been warring with inside of ourselves, and we've been doing war with the enemy. And well, if I just make this New Year's resolution, that will help. Uh, that's like a cap pistol. But again, that resolution is dependent upon your human ability to keep it and to, you know, to integrate it into your life. You cannot use human weapons to win a spiritual war. Why? Because this war takes place right here in your mind, in your thoughts, and your thoughts affect the way you feel, your heart, and your heart, your mind, and your heart affects what you do. If you want to change what you are doing, you must first change how you are thinking. Your mind is the control center of your life. 
What we normally do, and the cap pistol we pick up, is that we tend to go with our emotions when trying to do war. Not going to work. Here's the second reason you need the armor. is because of the nature of the victory that Jesus has won for you. I want you to listen, uh, you can turn to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13. It says this. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He, he forgave us how much of our sin? All of our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And have, watch this, having disarmed who? The powers, the authorities, the same words that Paul uses in Ephesians 6. He's talking about the unseen realm, the demonic beings, Satan himself, the powers, the authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by way of the cross. So Jesus has already won your victory. You're not fighting to win victory. You're fighting from victory. Please keep that in mind. You're simply learning how to appropriate the victory Jesus has already established on your behalf in order to wage this war. For example, when somebody says to me, okay, you say the antidote to um, inner healing is forgiveness. I can't do that. That's a lie of the enemy. You can do that. You must do that. Jesus has given you the ability and the victory to, by with which to do that. You forgive others just as Christ has forgiven you. You can. It might be that you don't want to, but you can. And it is the key to appropriating the victory of Jesus in your life because it's the first step in extending grace to somebody else so that God takes that extension of grace and then he begins to transform your heart into something that is beneficial not only to yourself but to other people around you. You kind of get the idea? Jesus, look, he's already invaded Satan's domain and won back all the territory that Adam lost in the Garden of Eden. And now he's putting that authority back into our hands. Here's the third reason. It's because he said the day is evil. What does that mean? That's the day when your number comes up, so to speak. You ever notice in life that sometimes there are seasons in your life where things are going really well? <laughs> I mean, things are going well. May, may, things may not be perfect, but at least they're going along pretty well. And then all of a sudden, it's like all hell breaks loose in your life. You ever had one of those experiences or I'm the only one? Right, so we all have, right? It's like Satan's got your number and he's just going to unleash everything he has in his arsenal against you. We see an example of this out of Job in the Old Testament. Remember, Satan and, and God has this conversation unbeknownst to Job, and then all of a sudden the day of evil hits Job's life. He loses his, you know, his livelihood, he loses his home, his children, his health, he loses everything. But what does Job do? What, how does he respond to all of that? He says, you know what? I, I'm going to, though he slay me, he says, speaking of God, He's thinking God's doing it. Though he slays me, my hope is still in him. The Apostle Paul um, in 1 Corinthians 6, 16, 13 says, Stand firm in the faith. Why? Because it's your faith in the one who provides you with everything you need that you're going to stand firm in as he um, 
as he equips you to deal with this issue you're finding yourself in, in this day of evil, this season in your life where things are really going south. And God doesn't want you to lose hope. He doesn't want you to lose faith. He doesn't want you to lose trust. He doesn't want you fighting that battle with a cap pistol. He wants you armoring yourself up for that day, day in and day out, so that you can experience, as Paul said at one time, do not Worry, do not be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be known to God. And the God can take the peace of Christ and guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus, regardless of what's going on around you. That's appropriating the armor of God in order to have peace in spite of the fact that the days are evil. You know, like our days in our world are pretty, pretty evil. It uh, doesn't mean I have to be hopeless doesn't mean that I have to be filled with anxiety, fear, and worry. I can cast all those things aside and walk in the victory of Jesus and have his peace regardless of what's going on around me. Why? Because life is hard. Sometimes life is just flat out unfair. And so you have to be equipped for that. So, All right, so let's answer the question. What does it mean to put on this belt of truth? Now, the spiritual armor that Paul is describing, he uses six pieces of the armor, is because at this time in Paul's life, when he wrote the book of Ephesians, he was chained to a Roman soldier while he was on house arrest in Rome awaiting his trial. And so uh, these soldiers are, you know, they, he, they're with him eight hours more or more a day. They kind of came in shifts. And so he's, as he's looking at these Roman soldiers, he begins to pick out the pieces of their armor and takes something that is physical and attaches a spiritual value to it. So one of the things that the soldiers wore were long tunics. And we don't wear tunics in our day and time, but certainly back then it's kind of like a, a long gown because of the uh, material that was made of in the hot desert. It was very cool. And so in order for a Roman soldier to get ready for battle, to be mobile, because if you try to move quickly in a tunic, you just kind of get all tangled up, is that they would pull the tunic up from this way, and they had a belt, and they tucked it in that belt. And on that belt also was hinged the breastplate, as well as um, other articles of his, his, um, his armor. And so what Paul is saying here is we need to gird ourselves up with the belt of truth because truth is very, very important in dealing with spiritual war. Because Satan only deals from the foundation of lies. That's why Jesus said he's the father of lies. That's all he does. That's all he knows how to do. And so he, he operates from the foundation of lies. And remember that whatever God creates, he counterfeits. And therefore, God gives us truth, he gives us lies. And so as God's operating and you know, working in your life, uh, you have to understand the truth upon which you are basing your life upon. And so when men use you know, our belts, like I have a belt on, what's the purpose of this belt? Well, the purpose of this belt is to keep my pants up. Right? Amen. You do not want to see that. that no. Uh, and, and to tuck in my shirt. Now, I don't have to tuck in my shirt because I needed to run, uh, but uh, it just kind of holds everything together. And that's what the belt of truth did. It, it kind of held everything that the soldier had upon himself. It held it, it together. It, it, he, without the belt, of, the belt, he couldn't keep himself together. Now, watch this. Without the truth of God appropriating Applying the truth to your life, 
you can't hold yourself together. Because now you're operating out of sheer willpower. You're operating out of something that is beyond you. And so we need the belt of truth. What is truth? The truth is designed uh, to do for us spiritually. Um, it's the standard objective, the reality that stands outside of our experience and outside of our opinions. In other words, the standard of truth that Paul wants us to build our lives upon is the Word of God. This is where we find ultimate truth. It is truth whether you believe it or not. It's truth whether you have a different opinion or not. It has always been true. Therefore, it transcends all cultures, all ethnicities, all nations, everything. Truth is truth, and it is the ultimate truth that God has given to us. It is our standard. And so uh, when you are against an enemy who's trying to take away your joy, trying to take away your meaning in life, your future, your family, your life, you had better go out into battle with the belt of truth on because otherwise um, he will manipulate you through two things, lies and your feelings. Oh, we love our feelings. We'll talk about that in a moment. But we, we love our feelings. We feel our feelings. We, we tend to move with our feelings. The belt of truth is becoming more and more important as we live in a, in a, in a world that no longer accepts objective truth. Truth is now relative. Truth is what you want it to be. What tr may be true for you is true for you. What may be true for me is true for me. They may not be one and the same. That's the, and so now the buzzword in our society is tolerance. We, we tolerate everything, and it's my opinion, your opinion. And so if you, just, if you try to enter into spiritual warfare, devoid truth, and just your opinion, I'll guarantee you Satan's going to whoop you. He's going to whoop you good. And so we need to know God's truth. How much truth do we know? That's amazing to me that those who um, say, well, I don't want anyone telling me what to do and how to live my life. That's why I don't believe in the Bible. That's why I'm not a Christian. That's why I'm not a follower of Christ. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I want my truth, and I'll, de I'll discern what is truthful for me and what is not. Well, that's fine and well, but think about this. Do we apply that same principle when it comes to like when you go to, to a surgeon and you're about to have an operation, would you like your surgeon to walk in and say, you know what, and draw a line on your body and say something like, well, you know, it's sad that this is, ought to be the place we make the, the incision. Now, my opinion is different and other doctors have different opinions, but I think we're going to try it here and see how it works out. No, you don't want that, right? You want some objective truth. You want him to know where he ought to be cutting. Or you don't go to a pharmacist and say, you know, hand the prescription, and the pharmacist says, well, I'm really not sure which pills to give you. In my opinion, these are the pills that would work best. But the pharmacist down the street, he, he believes these pills might kill you, but I don't think they will. So we're going to gamble on that. We're going to go with this. Now, you, you want objective truth. You want that pharmacist to know exactly what he or she is giving you in order for your health to be sustained. And so... When we are operate in an operating room or we go to the pharmacist, we want an objective standard of truth, a precise standard, and this is exactly what we need. Now, you're going to notice that these six pieces of the armor are in two categories. He says in verse um, 13, after you have done everything, 
And then he says, after you've done everything, then stand firm with the belt. And so he names off the three pieces of armor. So these are three pieces of the armor that you need to wear all the time. The next three, he says in verse 16, take up. Take up the shield of faith. Take up the sword of the spirit. And so this is something you take up given the, the moment that you find yourself in. Like a baseball player who's sitting in a dugout, he's going to go out on the field. He gets up, he grabs his glove, and he heads out on the field. If he's going to bat, he's going to grab his bat and he'll head out in order to, to bat. So depending upon the circumstances determines what he's going to grab. And so this is how the, 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 the armor is put together is that there are some things that we need to make sure we are adorning ourselves with every single day and other things we need to take up at a moment's notice when we find ourselves engaged in warfare. So here are the, what it means to put on the belt of truth. Number one is your actions, your actions are to be determined by truth. Your actions are to be determined by truth. How do you determine what is true and right in your life? Well, some people say, well, I rely upon my internal compass, the way I feel, right? Or I, I rely upon my conscience, you know, how, what my conscience is telling me. Well, the problem with your conscience is that your conscience, the Bible says, is seared. Um, and, and it's unreliable unless it's being surrendered under the Holy Spirit's guidance. Your feelings are fickle. I mean, they're all over the map all the time. So they're not really that reliable. For other, it, it's the whims of popular opinion. Well, I, I base it upon what my friends think, or I base it upon what, uh, you know, um, my professors told me, or I base it upon, you know, what my favorite celebrity says. I, they're, they're, the, they're the epitome of truth for me. Good luck with that one. The only way you escape deception from the enemy is to let the word of God shape your thinking. Again, because the way you think is the way you feel, which is the way you act. But in this age of relativism it, that permeates our culture, and the result is, well, my truth is my truth, and your truth is your truth. Here's the, here's the, the fallout of all that. And, and we see this. It leaves us in a state of constant flux, constant movement. Um, in other words, truth has now become subjective to whatever it is you want it to be. So this happened all the way back in the Old Testament. You'll remember in Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Truth became subjective. And doing everything in the, that was right in their own eyes for the Israelites brought to them a world of hurt and defeat. They started taking on behaviors and characteristics that was their downfall. Things like violence and bloodshed and rape and the list just goes on and on. Listen, truth cannot be defined by individuals who have been created because individuals who have been created are finite and have limited knowledge and the Bible says we have deceitful hearts. We can't discern what truth is. Only our creator who created truth and created the earth upon which we live, the kingdom upon which we reside, only he can determine what is truthful and what is not. That's why truth has to be based on God's word. It's fundamentally, that's what it is. It's God-based knowledge. Truth at its core is God's view of the matter. Truth is powerful. The presence of truth brings clarity and victory. The absence of truth brings to us confusion and defeat. 
The reality is that truth causes us to move more confidently and freely. Yet the issue is, watch this, we love truth as long as it agrees with what we want. If it doesn't agree with what I want, I'll throw truth out the window in a heartbeat. That's our downfall. And so, again, truth, your actions ought to be determined by truth, not by what you want or what is, you think is best for you, but by what God says is truth and what God says is best for you. There's no such thing as my truth and your truth. There's only truth, and everything else is either emotion, opinion, or spin. Now, here's where we get into trouble, is that we make decisions based on how we, we feel, right? This is how I feel, and this is what, you know, I just think my, emotionally, this is what I want to do, and again, how we feel. Here's what Proverbs 14.30 says, a sound mind makes a robust body, but it runaway emotions corrode the bones. In other words, uh, the emotional decisions that you make, not based on truth, but on emotions, will ultimately hurt you down the road. Maybe not immediately, but down the road. Now, we're already experts at that, right? How many of you um, are engaged in what we would call emotional eating? You feel anxious, you want to eat. You feel tired, you want to eat. You feel worried, you want to eat. And so this is what COVID-19 is really all about. COVID is the virus 19 or the number of pounds that you gained during isolation. <laughs> because you're emotionally eating, right? So it's like, have you ever noticed that emotional eating is never, never healthy for you? Nobody calls up a friend and says, well, what are you doing? Well, I'm emotionally eating. Oh, what are you eating? Man, I just packed in, I'm telling you, I just packed in two pounds of Brussels sprouts, a pound and a half of kale. I, I'm telling you, I'm really full. No, what would we say? We'd say, man, I just downed a large pizza, 12 wings, a couple of chocolate chip cookies, but I'm washing it down with Diet Coke. It's okay. <laughs> now, you know Diet Coke's just trying to soothe our conscience. We're just eating, you know, east of 3,000 calories, but, you know, we'll soothe our... So we don't know all about emotional eating and emotions and how they can direct and govern our actions in life. Emotions are great and they are God-given, but they should never be, have the final say in your actions, especially if what your emotions are telling you is different than what God's truth is telling you. You always go with the truth. Regardless of how you feel. Listen, when I, when, when, as I share, when I, my, God wanted me to forgive my dad, I did not feel that. I, like, oh, boy, I can't wait to do that. Right? Nobody emotionally, like, no. My feelings were A, 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 B, C, and D. But you have to make yourself go against. Your will goes against your emotions. Because your will is the part of you makes decisions based on the mind and the emotions. And sometimes you have to go against your emotions and live out the truth. Here's the second aspect of this. Your outlook is informed by truth. Your outlook is informed by truth. You know, when Jesus was asked the question about where his kingdom originated from, he said it doesn't come from this earth. In his encounter with um, Pilate in John chapter 18... The Jews by that time wanted to get rid of Jesus, but they knew they had no authority to institute capital punishment. But they did know that if they brought him before Pilate and if they could, you know, some way communicate that Jesus is claiming to be a king and thus have a rival kingdom, that that would be considered treason against Caesar and therefore a, a, an offense that could be punishable by execution. That was their plan. That's what they conjured up. 
They had Jesus at Pilate's feet. And they said, hey, he claims to be the king of the Jews. And so if you're a king that, that um, you're claiming to be a king, then obviously you must have a kingdom somewhere, right? And so the very first question Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And I want you to listen to Jesus' uh, response. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. You catch that? Jesus is not saying that his kingdom is not in this world. He says it did not originate in this world. Here's what I'm trying to get you to see. Is that we as followers, apprentices of Jesus, we are members of the kingdom of God. Our king has an objective. Our king has a worldview. The worldview is based upon his truth. Every single one of us sitting here has a worldview. Your worldview is your value system based upon what you consider to be truth or not truth, and it determines how you think. It determines how you make decisions. It determines how you see life, how you see yourself, how you see relationships, what your purpose is, what, your, what meaning is in your life. For example, you know, our kids go to school every single week, and they're confronted with two worldviews. There are those who are taught the theory of evolution. All right, the theory of evolution says that humanity is a product of random, random chance. And so if you, you, you learn the theory of evolution, that is a worldview. And if you have God's worldview, God says, no, I created you. I knit you together in your mother's womb. I have, planned, I have a plan and a purpose from your, for your life before I ever set your feet out on planet Earth. I love you, and I created you unique above all of my other creation. You are a special, special individual to me. Two different worldviews. Therefore, I'm going to look at the world through two different lenses, depending on what worldview I adopt. And so Jesus says, and he began to describe to his own disciples and to us that a worldview is what we believe about reality. It's what we be believe about life and family and children, and it impacts how we live, how we love, how we vote, how we, everything to the core of our being, our decisions always line up with what we consider our worldview. This is what God wants us to build our truth on, his worldview. That's why you have the Bible. God has given you in Scripture his worldview. This is the lens through which we are to see everything. It is to be the absolute governing standard that transcends time, culture, ethnicity, gender preference, whatever else it might be. It's the standard to which everybody will be held accountable one day. And so we're, we're living in a very changing time, and I get that and understand that. So um, there's a lot I could say about that, but I'm, since I'm low on time, um, let me just give you one example, though. In the challenging time we're living in, based on a worldview, um, if somebody were to ask you, how many genders are there? All right, we want to base that on, all right, so your worldview is, I base everything upon scientific fact. What does the science tell me? The science tells me there's two genders. But what do we 
what do we purport in our society today? I think we're up to like 50 or 60 different genders. So what is that based upon? Is that based upon truth? No, it's not even based upon scientific fact. It's based upon somebody's preference. It's based upon somebody's opinion. But this is the way I feel. This is what I believe. But what's the basis of your belief? What's the basis of your feeling? The basis of your belief and feelings is on your worldview, whatever that is, and from wherever you constructed that worldview. You can borrow from a lot of different places in developing your worldview. And so people do that, right? They borrow from everything, all different religions and all different, you know, other things that society says is true or not true and, you know, just how I feel, my own personal opinion, not that I can necessarily back it up scientifically or any other way, but it's just the way I feel and it's just the way I believe that God made me and therefore it has to be true. And so this is the society in which we find ourselves. This is why Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, when people ask about the hope that is in you, that when you answer them, you are to answer them gently and respectfully. Not dogging them with the Bible and saying, well, God says, and you got to believe it, and you don't believe You're not going to reach the world like that. We are living in a time in which apologetics is very, very preeminent in need because most people have little or no knowledge of the Bible. They really don't know how you have come to your conclusions about the worldview that you are professing and therefore, I believe that Christianity is really um, holds up against scrutiny against anything else, better than anything else. But you've got to be able to construct that for somebody who is not of the faith if you want them to see and understand. But we, we are living in a time when you cannot have conversations anymore. People just start yelling at each other and they label each other. And please don't try to do it on social media because that makes it even worse. So when somebody asks me a question on social media, I oftentimes will private message them and say, I would love to have that conversation with you. However, I don't have the time or the space to type that many words to unfold for you what it is that the Bible teaches about this if you really want to know. I would love to talk with you on the phone or we can do it in person. So why? Because our worldview is very, very important to all of us. And so our outlook on life is informed by the truth that we've used, whatever that is for you, to construct our worldview. Here's the third reason why you need to put on the belt and why is it so, so important. Because your thoughts are transformed by truth. Your thoughts are transformed by truth. The battle is between your ears. People believe what they want to believe, and that's why truth is so hard to come by these days. Listen, there are no amount of facts that will convince anyone who's committed to disbelief. You can give them all the facts you want, and here's why. And this comes right out of secular psychology. They did a study on this. Why is that? Because when people, even if you come to them with truth and, and that, that you know, combats what they believe, their disbelief, because they're a part of a tribe and they don't want to go against the tribe. That means they got to leave the tribe so this is why it's hard for people, for example, to become a, a follower of Christ, right? So I came from an unchurched family. So when I became a Christian, it's almost like I'm leaving my tribe, my family, because now all of a sudden God is teaching me truth, and I'm beginning to see the glaring um, 
weaknesses of my family and my upbringing and a lot of things that I were taught were really not true and, and all of these things. And so you're, you're, you're dislocating yourself from your tribe. This is why people will dig in their heels and they will not budge an inch. Even if you give them actual facts and truth, it's because unless their tribe is willing to move, they're probably not willing to go that, in that direction. But God's Holy Spirit can, can do, a, can do a, a miracle in people's lives. And help them to understand and discern the truth. So here's what Jesus said. And this is the last passage. Look in John chapter 8. Very familiar passage. One we like to use all the time. And so Jesus, man, he's been giving the gospel to those who are listening to him. And uh, in John uh, chapter 8, the, very, you know, the, the most famous verse we know about this. He says in chapter 8 verse, um, verse 32. He says to the Jews who believed in him, Jesus, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth. And what will the truth do? Set you free. Now watch the ploy of the enemy. Now he's talking to people. His disciples are there. Uh, there are some people who have become followers of his. And then there are those who are not. And so those who are outside, uh, you know, who are not. And Jesus in this statement is really referring to a belief in himself as the Lord and the Savior of the world. And so Satan always chimes in, and uh, here's, here's what his, his, the objection is of the others. They go, they immediately go, well, we're free. We, we, what are you talking about? We're free. Oh, we have our father Abraham. We're descendants of Abraham. We have our father Abraham. We're free. And so Jesus gets into discussion with them, and ultimately Jesus brings them around and says, no, 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 no. What you have believed is a lie. I know your feet are rooted into this, this truth. But the truth is, you need me as your Savior because I'm the Savior of the world. You're believing a lie. And then he brings it around in chapter 8 and verse 44. He says, you're listening to your father who is a liar and the father of all lies. This This is how Satan operates. He takes truth and he begins to twist it. And so whenever he comes at you, he continues to do this today. Um, substituting his version of facts in place of the real truth. So every time you make a decision, and he's going to begin with this satanic question in your mind. Did God really say that? You know. (laughs) He puts a spin on it. You know. God just doesn't want you to become like him. But you know, if you do this, you'll become like him. In fact, you will know things that you've never known before, and it's going to lead to your Happiness, pleasure, fulfillment. Go for it. Um, In other words, live out your truth, not God's truth. Why do we bite that bait? And we do a lot. First of all, because it makes more emotional sense to us. The truth just doesn't seem as immediately gratifying because it asks us maybe to deny ourselves, to put that off, to put that aside that's not really good for you. And so our truth urges us to seize the day, make your hopes and dreams a reality, go for it. 
The fact is, everything we do, every decision that we make is about our own happiness, about our own fulfillment, about our own desires. So the work you go after, relationships, money, all the stuff we buy, promotions, vacations, it's all about what you love, what I love, what makes me feel good, what makes me happy. We are walking hedonists. And pleasure's in the name of the game, if you're really honest with yourself. Listen, the Bible does not rail against you being a hedonist. It does want you to figure out where you're going to find that happiness and fulfillment and ultimate pleasure in life. Because God has an alternative. What Satan's offering you is going to set your feet on a path. Every path has a destination. And so James says he baits the pathway And then when we take the bait and we start down that journey thinking this is going to bring me ultimate happiness and pleasure and fulfillment in life, when we get to the end of it, he says it only leads to death. It does not give you what you're looking for. God says, I have an alternative path that's based on truth, and if you'll follow this path and you'll follow me, I will bring you to the ultimate destination that will ultimately bring you happiness and fulfillment and contentment in your life. Two different avenues. You know, there's an island in Japan where it's said that people live to be 100 years old per capita more than anywhere else in the world. You know what they eat? Fresh fish and rice and vegetables every day. So now that we've learned how to be 100, you want to know one of the reasons I'll never make it? Bacon. Bacon. I love bacon. I'll never make it. (laughs) Here's the second reason. I'll close with this. Here's the second reason why we choose to live our truth rather than God's truth is because truth is just so darn unfashionable, right? It's like you're following God's way and you're going against the grain of society. It's just not fashionable. It's just like, you know, but I want to go with the flow. I don't want to be considered, you know, somebody who's weird and somebody who's this and that and the other and and all the things that we, we we place upon ourselves, and so we, we attempt to redefine reality for ourselves, to, to fall in line with everybody else, and it, it just results in a lot of chaos in our society and in our lives personally. So here's what Paul says. He says, be, you, you, do not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. So let's just take a case example. Let's say you're filled with worry and anxiety. What did Jesus say? Consider the lilies of the field, the birds of the air. That word consider means to to note carefully, to look at deeply, to study intently. And then Paul came along with a similar thing, and he said in Romans 8, 18, I consider the present sufferings in this world not worth comparing to the glory that has been revealed to us. And he says, That means to calculate, to take inventory. Here's what Paul says to us. When you and I are faced with anxiety and worry and fear, how are we going to respond? What's the basis of truth? The basis of truth that renews my mind, that transforms my life, is God says, consider very carefully about what you're about to decide. Consider, look very intently about what is facing you. And let the truth of God's word, not your feelings, not your emotions, not the lie of the evil one, to direct your path. Because I want you to consider the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. 
Does not your heavenly Father take care of them? How much more valuable are you to him than they? Will he not also take care of you? Travel that path, and I will free you from the fear, anxiety, and worry, and replace it with peace. That's putting on the belt of truth. Let's pray together.